I'm Alka Khuri and host of the new podcast, South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington, Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. In this episode, I'll be talking to Arundhati Roy, one of India's most celebrated and radical authors, scriptwriters, and a political, human rights, and environmental activist. Roy's debut novel, The God of Small Things, won the Man Booker Prize for Fiction in 1997. It sold six million copies worldwide and was translated into 40 languages. Roy's second novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, was published 20 years later in 2017. Um, shortlisted for the Man Booker and the Hindu Literary Prize, the novel was a finalist for the National Book Critics Award as well. Roy is also known for her non-fictional writing. This includes a large number of political essays, articles, and books on colonialism, nationalism, imperialism, capitalism, casteism, patriarchy, focusing in particular on the oppression and rights of minority populations in India, the indigenous Adivasi people, Dalits, religious minorities, women, and children. Roy has recently published My Seditious Heart, which is a thousand-page collection of a complete non-fictional writing. Arundhati Roy is in San Francisco today for the November 2019 National Women's Studies Association Conference, where she will be giving a keynote speech. Dear Arundhati, welcome to South Asian Films and Books. Thank you. It gives me so much pleasure to talk to you. I'd like to start with My Seditious Heart. In the appendix of the book, um, there are two of your earliest essays, The Great Indian Rape Trick, Parts 1 and 2. These are based on the film The Bandit Queen that fictionalizes the life of Poolan Devi. In these essays, you challenge the filmmaker Shekhar Kapoor's claim to truth, where he says that his film is, is an honest and truthful portrayal of Poolan Devi. You charge him instead with misrepresentation, falsification, and recreation of Hulan Devi's degradation, that is to say, her rape. Talk about that. Um, well, you know, I when I went to see the screening of the film, the first time it was screened, it Hulan uh, Devi had just been uh, released from jail, and I was surprised to see that she wasn't there, you know, at, at the screening of this film that was supposedly celebrating her life. And there were these guys who were talking about, you know, how they were feminists and they had shot this, made this film about this oppression and uh, the humiliation of this extraordinary woman. And when I saw the film, I was, I was so deeply upset because the film just revolved entirely around rape her being raped as a child, her being raped as an adult, her being raped all the time. And, 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 and what I knew of her was this extraordinary woman bandit who had never been arrested. Like all the men had been caught and arrested. Nobody could find her. And finally, they actually asked, I mean, they actually came to an agreement and she surrendered. And of course, she was illiterate. So they 
they conned her even in that and she had spent a long time in jail and then come out and I thought you've turned India's most extraordinary bandit into history's most famous victim of rape and then in the next day I read in the papers that she was upset she said she felt like she was being raped all over again and you know the celebration of this fictional character was met with an immediate sort of contempt for her as a real person you know immediately the reaction was oh she's just a bandit she's trying to make money and so on so I went to see her and then I wrote the great Indian rape trick uh, it was also because you know I had grown up uh, uh, as a child in Kerala and I'd be taken to see these Malayalam films and every single film the woman would get raped you know and the rape would be shown in all kinds of ways but I really grew up thinking that every woman gets raped you know and I, I realized there's such a complicated pretense of concern uh, well actually there's some kind of vicarious thrill going on there so so my point was about her that you cannot restage the rape of a living woman without her consent I mean if she consents to it and if she agrees with the way it's portrayed, then fine. I'm, I'm not coy about it, but you do need her permission. And, and so, you know, she she states frequently and insistently uh, about the fact that, you know, she'd like to see the film or how she wanted the film to be based on her own narrative, you know, these little narratives that she was writing and smuggling out of the out of the jail. And, and um and she only wanted her own version, and she would refer to her own sexual brutalization and rape as... Bezati. Uh, Bezati, yeah. So then you um, accused the filmmaker of portraying Devi both as a victim, someone who never threatened the power imbalance, and at the same time a monster, you know, completely irrational, too sentimental, and essentially violent. And as you put it, Kapoor's film is not the story of an extraordinary woman, it is a manifesto about Indian womanhood. As you pointed out about you know, the ways in which women in the Malayali films will also be shown as you know, victimized, as, as rape victims. It was also, you know, it was also true that there was a case in court and I think the last sentence of one of the essays says that this film could end up putting a knife in her back or a bullet in her head and that's exactly what happened to her not that it was because of the film but I think there were many levels of uh, very troublesome things there you know yeah and you do make this point about you know how um, the West has always used the soft power of cinema in order to reinforce certain kinds of ideologies and Indian cinema has been doing that and more so these days the ways in which Bollywood is used for to, you know for the service of the political establishment um, but your searing critique of Kapoor's film reminds me of Chandra Mohanty's claim that a third world woman is not a monolith, that you know, she's multi-layered and she's diverse and she's not essentialized as this third world woman. And so, um, yeah, so it was really useful to talk to you about the ways in which you, know, you talk about the process of essentializing of Indian, Indian womanhood. What I also find is, um, interesting about your analysis and subsequently, because I read this, these articles a long time back, and I read them again and again recently. And uh, in a subsequent readings, 
help me understand or help me see this pa striking parallel between Bandit Queen, which as we know was made by a male film director, a middle class male film director, and the 2015 documentary film India's Daughter, made by Leslie Unwin, who is a BBC funded white female filmmaker. Both films hugely popular and massively celebrated in the West. My question to you is, what kind of a journey Indian woman, quote-unquote, this, you know, singular, monolithical woman, what journey has this Indian woman made from Bandit Queen to India's daughter? How would you compare Pulan Devi's rage and yours too at her misrepresentation? You know, would Jyoti Singh's ghost too would, you know, be outraged at the way in which it's depicted in the film? So how do you compare Pulan Devi's rage with the rage of Indian feminists or some of the Indian feminists who have serious objections to India's daughter, where women were essentialized as daughters, you know, by this white Western middle-class filmmaker that comes armed with the paraphernalia of imperialism, the camera and the gaze, as a result of which she has access to India's most secure jail and, and you know, helps her make the ultimate rape narrative about India. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to compare them, but I think they're both quite different, you know, and uh, what was happening, apart from the India's Daughter film, what was happening around those protests was also quite troubling, you know, because part of the protests came out of women's rage at not being safe on the streets, but a whole other part came out of a kind of uh, male chauvinist wanting to own the body of women again and talking about it in a way where you want you want to once again imprison young girls and say you know that we have to keep our women safe so that these things are so layered and complicated in in the way they play out and it's not just about a white western view of things in the case of nirbhaya i think it was a case where some of the rage was real a lot of other things happened too, you know, and uh, I remember a, a few months later, or maybe a year later, a two-year-old girl was was raped, and her family came out and said, you know, Nirbhaya, she was a uh, she was a not a very modest woman. She was going out with men and watching film. But what has our daughter done? What did our little girl do? You know, so uh, I think when you look at protests or films or anything around rape it's so layered and so dangerous to conflate things you know so um the 2017 hashtag me too movement you know that was projected by the west as uh, having finally revived feminism globally in that context in your pre i refer to your uh, your reference to pull and Devi in your preface where you say yes hashtag she too and I was curious to know why you added this hashtag, you know, how, what you felt about, you know, the use of social media or the mm. intersection between social media and feminism. Well, I think there again, you know, I think the Me Too movement, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon and it's an outburst, it's an explosion and an important one, you know, to change the rules of how, particularly how things play out in the workplace. But we should never forget the huge building blocks that are moving into an old stage of patriarchy without our noticing, you know. Mm -hmm. For example, I just come from Assam, where this whole registration of the National Register of Citizens is, is happening and 
almost two million people have been excluded from that list. And one of the extraordinary things that's going on there is that people are being asked to prove their their patriarchal legacy from 1971. But your mother's legacy doesn't matter mm-hmm. at all, you know. So, for example, I, uh, I mean, of course the NRC has all a lot to do with with uh, all kinds of bigotry, especially against the poor, but against uh, Muslims, against Bengali. But I was actually born in Assam, Shillong at the time. It was a part of Assam. And my father was a person who's originally from Bangladesh. But I don't know anything about my father's legacies because I, I mean, they were separated. I grew up with my mother. It wouldn't count. You know, I, I would technically, I mean, not really, but technically I would be in a detention center, you know. <laughs> of course, uh, the detention is only for the poor, you know, only I'm not a victim of that. But I'm just saying, or when you look at what's happening in the Narmada Valley, where hundreds of thousands of people are being displaced off their lands, Adivasi people, rural women, the compensation mostly goes to the men, you know. So there's a kind of re you know a patriarchy that's making its way back uh, if i went to the forest in buster where people are being murdered and moved off their lands for corporate mining there are 90000 adivasi women in the adivasi krantikari mahila sangathan which means a revolutionary uh, women's organization for indigenous women but you know they are not in the in the kind of somewhat NGOized uh, and increasingly urban focus of feminists. They don't even count, you know. So because they also they are also threatening the the economic status quo, you know. So uh, I don't I'm just saying that the, the the battles are wider than just one thing. Than the hashtag. Than yes. the social media. Definitely. Um, I think it's interesting to also note that um, while there's been some kind of you know, like a massive anti-feminist you know backlash in the Western world that's been happening for a long time, and of course internationally, and suddenly Me Too comes up and bubbles to the surface, Time magazine makes it out to be the person of the year, and then it's portrayed as having revived feminism globally. But if you look at you know countries like India, and there was someone like Bhamri Devi, who's 1992 had been waging a battle in spite of you know the yeah. severe limitations mm. on her, um, because of her class and caste status and because of her gender. It's like uh, you know in India there are spaces like in some village, in Haryana where men would be ashamed if they were not on the Me Too list, you know, because they feel that this is the correct kind of behavior i mean look at what look at what has happened after the abrogation of section 317 kashmir the google search for marry a kashmiri girl just surged you know the conquest involved land and women the primeval trophies of conquest the chief minister of haryana said you know now you can go in so the 2012 protests were certainly not one-off. There have been protests happening against misogyny for a long time, but not in the you know the scale at which it happened. But interestingly, if you look at some of the slogans that were raised, in particular, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath, you know, a couple of days later, 
and embedded within these anti-sexism slogans were also those for minority rights. What do you think, in what ways did the 2012 incident galvanize people around a range of grievances? How did it become so massive? Was it just about sexism or was it something else too? I mean, you know, personally, I think that there was uh, those those events around the Anna Hazare movement and then Nirbhaya. One was supposed to be about corruption and the other about this brutalization. And there were always groups of people who were protesting for that and for the right reasons. But around them accumulated uh, a whole lot of other people with whole kinds of other agendas, not all of them progressive, you know. So there were people raising slogans for Soni Sori and Kashmir and Kunan Poshpura and all of that. But, you know, uh, technically, basically, you have seen what happens in India. I mean, uh, there are some rapes that are acceptable and some rapes that are not. Like... Kunan Poshpura, the rape of so many Kashmiri women, it happened a long time ago and nobody is really willing to deal with that, you know. The um, brutalization of Kashmiri women, not just by rape, but just the daily humiliation of having to walk past soldiers and get searched and check posts and all of that is acceptable to Indians, right, to most Indians. The rape of uh, Dalit or any woman by a person from a higher caste has been almost a tradition. These are things which I just I just think that they are so layered, you know. But something else was happening those years, and I mean, obviously, in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, I'm talking about the anti-corruption movement, which within which was the Hindu right had smuggled itself into that, you know, and used that to, uh, the corporate media took it over. There was 40 days of non-stop attack on the government, uh, which was surely corrupt, but here you had, you know, corrupt corporations and uh, the agenda was different. And it is that movement, according to me, which led to the uh, victory of the BJP in the way that it happened. It was a kind of coup from inside that. Um, yeah, surely. So, of course, there is this other side to the story always. And I'm referring to Ambedkar's despair, which, and I'm quoting from your book, when, when he claims that if the fundamental rights of people are opposed by the community, yeah. no law, no parliament, and no judiciary can guarantee, guarantee them. You're seeing that now, today. Yeah. You're seeing that every day on the streets of India. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. During this unprecedented 2012 anti-sexual violence you know, protests, in the same year, more than uh, one and a half thousand Dalit women had been raped, more than 650 Dalit people had been murdered, notwithstanding countless Dalits that were otherwise brutalized, degraded and humiliated. And so how do you make sense of this? Talk about what you refer to as a trickle-down revolution, about the boutique middle-class protests at India Gate and those at Jantar Mandir. Well, you know, the thing is that you look at, if you take a wider sweep of 
of what has happened in India, you know, since the 60s until now. In the 60s, you had all kinds of movements, the Naxalite movement, uh, and all kinds of social justice movements questioning class, demanding justice, questioning caste, demanding the redistribution of land, calling for land to the tiller, calling for revolution, really, you know. Those were smashed by, by the state, I mean, brutally. Uh, it didn't go away, obviously, the Naxalite movement didn't go away, it kept reappearing and, and, and eventually in, in, in uh, 2004 began like full throttle once again in the forests of Bastar. But those movements that were calling for a, a revolutionary justice then gave way to uh, another phase where you had movements like the Narmada Bachao Andolan, you know, what they, they were environmental movements, but they were at least, now they were asking you not to displace people I mean, they were not even asking for redistribution. Now they were just asking for the a limit to the brutalization. You know, they were just saying that don't displace people, these fragile populations from lands they already have. And so you had huge movements against corporate mining, against uranium mining, against aluminum. And those were the, the, the beginnings of the opening up of the markets and so on, you know. And simultaneously... As this kind of uh, as this kind of economy opened up, you had the growth of these huge corporations like Reliance and so on. You had uh, you you just had this widening gap between the rich and the poor, and yet you had a new middle class that was created, which was viewed by the world as a market, and therefore India became a very attractive financial destination. And um, so, you know, by trickle-down revolution, I'm talking about things like CSR, you know, corporate social responsibility, and the idea that you share your profits and do some good works. But there was no questioning anymore of the fact that some people have the right to, to take over the commons, to take over the rivers, to take over the mountains, to make immense profit from that, and then just fling some crumbs at the poor to and and you had the whole NGOization of resistance. Then that's what happened, you know. And uh, so so now you have that situation where you have a company like Reliance, who's got millions and millions in public debt taken from banks, you know, and that is the basis of their wealth, which they are. Uh, and and while you have uh, while you have this fifth largest economy who's really right on the bottom of the global hunger index and the malnutrition index and all of that, so it was a revolution, but it was a revolution of the rich. And despite the horrors of caste, there's complete absence uh, of international outrage against casteism in in India. How do we make sense of this? Because uh, you know, it's it's always been portrayed as some mysterious uh, Hindu thing, which nobody can really understand, and it's mixed up with the scriptures and yoga and Gandhi and all of that. So, 
it's very difficult to decipher it's not like it's not it's not uh, color-coded like apartheid was or like racism is you know it's it's complicated for people on the outside to really see it or understand it I think it's changing so in India there has multiple economies and levels of development and underdevelopment and you've written extensively on the horrendous oppression and violation of the disenfranchised the Dalits, Adivasis, members of minority religions, women, children, etc. And you talk with deep sadness about the poor driven off their ancestral land, ghettoized in, you know, in cities, terrorized, physically brutalized, raped, imprisoned, locked in, locked out, famished. But yet you say there is hope. Because people have begun to stand up to it. For example, you refer to the Buster people that are among the poorest in the world, uh, but who managed to stop the richest corporations in their tracks. Talk about that. Well, I mean, that I said a while ago, but in fact, yesterday I was, I did a long uh, lecture at the Cooper Union, and I was saying that, you know, those great movements are being silenced now and the street in India has been taken over by something else. And that something else is the rise of the Hindu right, you know. And it is also about the complete takeover of people's minds by that, you know. So today, whether you you know, the annexation of Kashmir, you're seeing a group of 7 million people under a digital lockdown and the densest military occupation in the world. So in Kashmir, there are 7 million people, most of whom don't wish to belong to India, who are locked down. In Assam, there are 2 million people who long to belong to India, who are being struck off the list of citizens. And, and in uh, the rest of India, this 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 growth of the RSS, which has now got 57,000 branches and 600,000 volunteers, the 113 lynchings that have taken place, and the new amendment that is coming to the National Register of Citizens, which they want to now apply all over India, the Citizenship Amendment Bill, which basically maneuvers itself into a place where technically it says that uh, you know, persecuted minorities who are Christian, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, anyone who's not Muslim can eventually become, be given refuge in India, but Muslims, not. But when you actually look at how that whole thing works, the idea is under the guise of talking about Bangladeshi infiltrators requiring Muslims in India to produce legacy documents. Nobody has them. So you are going to create a system of tiered citizenship where Muslims are the new Dalit, legally, you know. So already they are building the detention camps and already they are building the foreigners' tribunals. Already people have start, started committing suicide. Already people are terrified. You cannot uh, probably incarcerate or even kill 200 million people but you can surely in the imagination of the rest of the country say this is where these people belong you know and the slogans as you have heard in 
riots and things because Musliman ka ekistan, Kabristan ya Pakistan. That constant, the constant reiteration that these are outsiders, these people don't belong here. I mean, if a 450-year-old mosque, the Babri Masjid, has been uh, it's been it was demolished in 92 and today the court has has given that land over to a trust to build a Hindu temple and basically seems to say that the, 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 the Muslim side could not establish its the fact that it was uh, using that mosque for for all those years uninterrupted it's like you think if a 450-year-old standing mosque can't produce its required legacy papers, how is a, you know, Muslim farmer or a vendor going to do that? You know, so uh, it's it's a very frightening situation there in India. I mean, hope. It's li a little difficult now to talk in terms of hope, but I yesterday I was speaking at the Cooper Union and someone had asked the question and I said, you know, that we just have to realize that the opposite of hope is not hopelessness, that there is a field between them and that's where we live and grow our crops and plot our next move. It's very sad to think it's, about everything. It's, it's very sad because, you know, you... Certainly, I have, you know, you're looking at... I mean, just like in, in, your, in, in my fiction, whether it was in The God of Small Things or in Utmost Happiness, you recognize the fact that a, a, a merely critiquing a state or state policies isn't enough no? because these prejudices of caste are practiced by people after all it's not in your constitution it's not a state policy but it is because the people of of india all practice caste you know in one form or another and uh, those old fissures between people not just caste but hindu muslim or you look at what's happening in the states of the Northeast, you know, everything, all the borders are closing, they're becoming like international borders, you know. So the, once you unleash uh, the idea of ethno-nationalism, you can't control the paths along which that fire will burn. I'd like to move to Rohit Bamula's suicide. In your words, you refer to it as uh, an insurrectionary uh, moment. And I wondered if you thought it was the same, as powerful as a Karlanji massacre incident, or maybe to some extent the Una brutalization. Well, I mean, the, the, the nothing is the same as anything else. You know, the Karlanji massacre, it was, uh, it, it was a massacre that followed an act of defiance by Surekha Bhutmangi, I mean, and the family who, who, who were Ambedkarites and Buddhists and were practicing their revolution in a way and that was what led to villagers surrounding them and, and beating them to death. 
the difference is that Rohit Vemula was a student at a very well-known university and he and he himself wrote that suicide note which was a piece of poetry you know and and that made it a very powerful moment and it took place in a university not in a village far away from everywhere you know so that's what made it that's what lit it up i mean kailanji took a long time for people to react some of the dalits i think they took some pictures and tried to sort of share them through social media because mainstream media wouldn't talk mm. about it at all mm. which of course mm. it never does so they did try um what about una una i mean una also led to una led to another you know those those azadi kuch marches and uh eventually the the rise of s- someone like jignesh mevani who i think um is vulnerable because he's an individual you know he doesn't have a infrastructure or political infrastructure around him so he's vulnerable but people like him do have something very important to say and that is it's important to listen to that you know and he for example was not so much you don't hear him now because all of it has been silenced by this 2019 election of modi but the demand for land you know not just for reservation because reservation in jobs uh, affirmative action and reservation in jobs while it's it's very very important it only is only very few dalits actually eligible to claim it because so many of them just drop out of college and school because oh, of the school. horror that faces them they face there you know mm-hmm. so jignesh taking that into a different uh, space not that anything happened but it was an important idea to put out mm-hmm. so now you're seeing a situation which is very dangerous because what happened in the 2019 elections the bjp with all the money that it accumulated after demonetization it its own wealth increased by 81% although india is now in recession apparently by according to many economists its own wealth increased and with the, that amount of money and with a very cunning understanding of how caste works in elections by exploiting the internal worlds of hierarchy and hegemony within dalit castes and within obc castes in the party politics of you know uh, mayawati and lalu and mulayam they destroyed those parties you know and uh, so what you're seeing now is a very very dangerous situation where uh once again you have uh they've destroyed it and yet their policies on privatization and education are undoing whatever small gains were made i mean the the the, the entry entry of obcs and dalits into universities and therefore into government jobs and so on gave them 
some purchase, you know. Now the privatization of education is going to push out all disadvantaged castes from the university scenario. Mm -hmm. So in a way they won the vote and now they're turning the knife. So going back to Rohit uh, Vamola, you know, his suicide, it did sort of mobilize and coalesce some of the most radical thinkers of today, in particular the young, for example, students. And I was actually going to be referring to Jignesh Narayan. How did it trigger? Because there have been suicides, you know, a lot of Dalit students have committed mm. suicide in institutions of higher education. But why this one? I think because of that letter. The letter, I, yes. th I do think so. I mean, maybe that's just me, a great amount of attention to a piece of writing. But I think it came out of an extended struggle. You know, it mm -hmm. wasn't that he just, you know, it isn't that it was a personal moment of it could have, of course, it, all suicides are personal moments of despair, but it wasn't quiet, you know. He and, and that group had been struggling publicly, making statements, uh, sitting outside the university in protest. So it, wa it wasn't just some private thing that happened. It was a private thing in a very public space. So there is, of course, you know, like, um, my seditious heart contains narratives that are older than what's happened today. So some of the um, aspirations or some of the things that you thought would be happening have been reversed. Um, so you were talking about this resistance movement, you know, the, by the left, the Ambedkar. What happened was, you know, again, coming back to 2012, inside that anti-corruption movement, two things happened. One was, I, as I said, the the uh, the Hindu right kind of embedded itself and then kind of raised its head later. And the other thing was that a lot of social movements, including the big ones like the Narmada movement, all of them joined. And then they, uh, and then they agreed to turn into a political party, you know, the Ahmadmi party, which in Delhi, of course, it won the elections, but in all other places, people are losing their deposits, you know. But once you agree to enter that paradigm, then you pay play by those rules, by the rules of money, by the rules of media coverage. And, and therefore, it not only actually gave a huge fillip to the, to the right wing, it destroyed social movements for... A very long time it destroyed their credibility for a very long time mm -hmm. so that was I mean that's what uh, I was very uh, very very alarmed when I saw that happening I wrote a piece in the Hindu about it you know I'd rather not be Anna because mm -hmm. everyone was going. yeah and at the same time you also talk about this infighting between the left mm. the Ambedkarites and Dalits and mm. OBCs mm. Yeah. That is, of course, mm -hmm. very universal yeah. and historical phenomenon, yeah. which is okay. I mean, you know, people, uh, you know, it, the trouble is that it's only when you're a complete, uh, you know, fascist that you can just power through this, this ideology which, which, which seems to have an integrity of its own, and that integrity is hatred, you know. Other groups are thinking through things, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, 
I uh, was struck by this line um, in one of your essays where you say that if you haven't read this, if you haven't read about Kerlanji, go read about it. Or mm. when you refer to, I think it's in the foreword, when you refer to Malala, you've heard mm. of Malala, but have you heard of Kerlanji? Um, so you talk about the, you know, the urgency of reading. Mm. And you say that revolutions begin with reading. And yet there is an insidious rise of anti-intellectualism. Where did it begin? I don't Where know. You know, I I uh, think there is that, and there is also another. Like one of the, I was showing a friend. It was so beautiful for me to see this. The uh, Doctor and the Saint has been translated into Hindi. So there's, I, someone sent me a photograph of a small. It was like almost like a roadside seminar in Jaunpur, a small town in UP, and the activists, women and young people, they had been given this book as a kind of prize or something. And you see, uh, you see them, you know, like here is a l almost rural community holding up and reading a, a book with proper academic annotations, you know. Before, I would say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in India, if you went for some sort of uh, meeting about called by any of the various left organizations you just see you know like a lot of old people now the young are thronging to those meetings they are reading a lot you know when i refer to the you know the rise of anti-intellectualism um i was in particular for trying to sort of you know get an insight into these attacks on universities yeah that's the hostility towards all forms of intelligence you know the attack on Jaini it's it's just relentless it's like they cannot tolerate it's a kind of annihilation project you know where any you know when it was remarkable the the this 2019 election after the vote was counted and you saw they had they had wiped the Congress out, they had wiped the Muslims out, they had broken the, the caste parties. And you think, uh, in the North, obviously not in the South, but you think that there would be a moment of joy. There was just rage, and they raged against whom? Against what they call the Khan market gang, which are intellectuals, you know, who have not bowed down, you know. So the attack on JNU, the attack on film uh, institute, the attack on Hyderabad University, it's relentless because it's no form of dissent is going to be tolerated. It's not even a policy, it's an instinct for them, you know, that they cannot allow it. In your 2003, mm. so I'm probably at the, at, the, at the cost of repeating myself and probably as a result of the fact that, you know, these essays... Mm are a compilation of your thought at different mm. moments mm. of your yourself as a writer. Um, in your 2003 essay, Confronting Empire, you provide a note of optimism. And the good news is, when you say, where you said good news is, that we're not doing badly. 15 years later, is there still hope for good news? Can we end oppression? Can we lay siege to the empire? Can we become, as you say, a collective pain in the ass? Um, I think that 
You know, I remember when I said that it was just before the Iraq war, I think. And today, when I look at what's happening in the US, I'm I'm amazed at the language. I mean, yeah, we know about Trump and all that, but look at the fact that you actually can use words like socialism and capitalism and you know there's a there's this big kind of the fort knox of capitalism is cracked open mm-hmm. and you know even listening to people like bernie sanders speak you just can't imagine this is mainstream i mean whether he wins or not is a different matter but this is mainstream you know people have understood and America, I mean, even coming into San Francisco yesterday, I was just, I was just so, so sad, you know, to see the amount of homelessness and the loneliness of that homelessness, you know, that you see that that is just not working. People know that now, you know. Um, on a, in India, you know, I feel that given the history of the RSS and given the history of, you know, from when the Babri Masjid issue started and all the killings and murders and massacres and pogroms that have happened, we know that we had to go through this period of the Hindu right coming right to the top and sitting on us, you know. I have no doubt that it will end. I don't know when and I don't know what the price we're going to pay for it will be. But it's as though this, all this, all this bigotry and awfulness has to be exercised. It has to come up to the surface. And boy, is it on the surface now, you know. Right. And until then? And then, I mean, I think there'll, there'll be chaos. And then we can't say it from what, from that chaos, what will come, you know, but, but, uh, you know, when, when you look at a country like India, with 780 languages, and more religions, and indigenous groups, and sub-nationalities, and nationalities than all of Europe, the only thing that makes India possible is the idea of secularism, however hollow and hypocritical it is. You understand that even hypocrisy, at least hypocrisy tells you there's some vestige of shame or that you have something to hide and therefore you're being hypocritical, you know. But now it's all floating on the surface like some chemical effluent from some horrible... Uh, you know, industrial process, and uh, it's it's right out there for everyone to see. I, I, you can see. I mean, Bolsonaro is going to be the chief guest at Republic Day. The whole a whole gang of far right European fascists were taken to Kashmir to, uh, you know, give the world a signal that everything is okay. So so. All these things are forcing these wickednesses out into the open, you know, things that were hidden before under this lovely sort of Bollywood song. Um, I like the fact that you um, refer to Chomsky with a P. (laughs) (laughs) And so can we 
Can we also despair at Arundhati Roy's loneliness? No, you can't, I don't think, because I'm not lonely. You know, there are other people, uh, many other people who are fighting this fight in their own ways. I mean, I'm lonely because I'm a writer, and writers, if they're not lonely, are in deep shit. But I'm not lonely politically, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, I mean, if you look at the the kind of revolutions that are happening in the world today, like protests, like massive, massive revolutions in Chile, in Hong Kong, in Lebanon. There was the Arab Spring. Why don't we see something like that in India? Well, that was supposed to be that anti-corruption movement, you know, which was very hokey. So right now, the revolution in India is is the takeover by the right, you know, the 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 people on the streets have swords in their hands and are shouting Jai Shri Ram. So we have to get our streets back. So can I then ask this question, and does it sound hollow, This, if I raise the slogan, occupy our streets, does it hollow, sound hollow in India, that language? Yeah, yeah, it does. at the moment it does, because as I said, the streets are occupied by something else. And we, like Ambedkar, you know, in his debates over the Indian constitution, and in his differences with Gandhi, who who trusted the people, Ambedkar didn't trust the people, you know, because he knew that the people are the ones who practice caste, you know. <laughs> so it's not so easy to just use these 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 blithe terms right now, because the people are the ones that are lynching other people and putting up the videos on YouTube. You know, the people are the ones that are spontaneously becoming a mob, you know. So we've got some uh, serious uh, problems on our hands. Like, we're not able to just separate the oppressive state from the people, you know? Like, India, I mean, China has press censorship. India doesn't have press censorship, but you still have 99% of the media returning the same bigoted opinion without censorship. This is a problem, you know? Well, on that hopeful, sad <laughs> note, with you know, we're just tinged with despair and hope is desperation. Hope, hope has nothing to do with reason. You know, it's just something that I I know that all of us will do what we do. Hope is just something that you tag onto that. But whether there's hope or not, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll hold our ground. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's so so wonderful to talk to you.